This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Uh, you listen to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, best bits from Monday, December the 12th. We had Steen Jakobsen join us uh, a little earlier on today. He's the Chief Investment Officer of Saxo Bank, actually here in Dubai at the moment as part of a sort of whirlwind trip, uh, taking in uh, a number of meetings uh, in different countries across the region. Uh, he came in to tell us about his Outrageous Predictions, an annual event uh, that, of course, Steen and the team at Saxo put together and uh, to explain them in person. We also had Vinamra Longani join us, the Head of Operations at Saren & Co. Why? Uh, because this rumour doing the rounds at the moment that the uh, now Tata Group, or again Tata Group owned Air India, are close to signing a massive deal with Boeing for what could be up to 500 new aircraft. wanted to know from Vinamra whether that deal had been done and what it says about the future and the ambition for Air India. Plus tax was very much to the fore. The new UAE federal corporate tax law uh, dropped on Friday. Uh, there will levy a headline 9% rate on taxable income exceeding 375,000 dirhams. Uh, a lot for us to get our heads around. That's why we've got Shiv, uh, Shiv Mahalingam from the Craigus Group to join us live in studio. Tax expert. So got his thoughts on that one. Plus, uh, Janet Yellen also making headlines, uh, comments over in the United States suggesting uh, that recession is just around the corner, uh, but it's needed to try and abate the inflation problems. Uh, plus Goldman Sachs moving more staff to the UAE. What does that mean for business here? What does that say about business here in the region? All that right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Well, let's turn our attention to international news stories. Um, Janet Yellen has been making the headlines. Why, Dini? Because she's been talking about inflation. And she says it's like going away. Um, we know inflation is a really big issue at the moment. Uh, but she gave an interview to 60 Minutes on CBS. Mm. So a wide-ranging interview about a number of different issues. Should we hear from her now? Yeah, here she is. I believe inflation will be lower. Um, I am very hopeful that the labour market will uh, remain quite healthy uh, so that people can feel good about their finances and their personal economic situation. We learned a lot of lessons from the high inflation we experienced in the 1970s. And we're all aware that it's critically important that inflation be brought under control and not become endemic to our economy. Janet Yellen there. Now, she's the Treasury Secretary. Of course, she used to be the, the head of the Fed. You need a little bit of context here because when she was the head of the Fed, she is independent. But now she's a politician. She's Joe Biden's effectively finance minister. Or some people call the Treasury Secretary the CFO of the United States. But she is political. So you, her, her comments are clouded with politics in a way that they were not when she was head of the Fed. Nevertheless, a very senior and experienced politician. So when she talks, the world listens. Daniel Richards certainly listens. He's senior economist at Emirates NBD. We've got a Fed meeting this week. They meet tomorrow. They decide on Wednesday. So we asked Daniel very simply, what's your view? Now, of course, everyone is hoping that this is indeed the case, given the turmoil that inflation has really thrown into global markets and economics this year, as it came back in force for the first time in decades, really. And indeed, 
it would be our expectation as well. We forecast an average inflation rate in the US of 4.3% next year compared to around 8% this year. So it's essentially going to halve in terms of that pace. But at the same time, I would caution there might be a sting in the tail yet. We're looking out for a CPI print this week, which is expected to show a further slowdown. But PPI print and inflation print we had on Friday came in a little hotter than expected. There's always a risk that wage price expectations get more baked in, which would make curbing inflation a harder task for the Federal Reserve. Now, coming up this week, the Federal Reserve will announce its final rate decision of the year on Wednesday night for us. And the likelihood is that there will be a 50 basis point hike, slower than the recent around 75, but still a move upwards. So that's Dan's take on the Federal Reserve and interest rates and what's going to happen. But we also got his take on this story, our top one this morning, Goldman Sachs, Bloomberg reports, moving more bankers to Dubai as the city becomes a magnet for global wealth. And they're private bankers, they're wealth managers, not investment bankers. This is not an IPO story. This is a millionaires and billionaires story. So we asked Dan, I thought this was a big deal, but you've got to ask a grown-up, haven't you? So I said to Dan, as a macroeconomist, bigger picture perspective, how significant, if at all, is Dubai's rising status as a global hub for the wealthy? Now, I think this is notable for a number of reasons. Firstly, that influx of high net worth individuals is a Phillips of economy in and of itself. We've seen that especially in the property market, where a series of record-breaking sales seen this year in the luxury segment in particular. The very rich will give serious boosts to a host of sectors around service, hospitality and high-end retail, as well, of course, as the banking sector. And at the same time, I think the fact that Goldman Sachs is moving more senior staff here underlines the attractiveness of a city to live in for those who are just very wealthy or just well off as well, or for everybody really. This is key for hitting the growth targets the government has set over the coming years, and it's being supported by the ongoing reforms around visas and social and business laws. Dan Richards of Emirates MBD. It's interesting to see the, the Bloomberg take, yeah. Tom, on the Dubai magnet for the wealthy. This is what they say, Bloomberg. Global banks are vying to capture a bigger slice of the wealth management market, and that battle is increasingly taking place in the Middle East. Home, says Bloomberg, to a sizable number of ultra-wealthy families, entrepreneurs, and royal family members. And then they go on to say this, Dubai in particular has become a preferred destination for financial professionals leaving Europe or Hong Kong, as well as Russian money since the Ukraine conflict began. Yeah, I think we've all seen evidence of of that. There has certainly been um, a relocation of wealth uh, here, and that has had a sort of a drip down effect on number of businesses, number of industries here at the moment. I don't think it's just, I think it's a culmination of things. I, I, I go back to this point that I've made time and time again, I think it sounds like a bit of a stat record, but it's this idea of eyeballs. And, you know, we all think that, you know, everyone in the world's heard of Dubai. Not everyone in the world's heard of Dubai. And yet more and more people have because of a number of reasons. COVID being one of them, um, Emirates, Dubai, one of the sort of first areas to, to, to open up again. And that brought more people into Dubai for the very first time and therefore eyeballs on it. Expo 2020, I think, has had an impact as well, brought new eyeballs into the region. Uh, the World Cup, I think, uh, to a certain degree, has had that impact as well, bringing new eyeballs here. And I think that COP28 will do exactly the same thing next year as well. So it's just new markets and new eyeballs. It is. Um you know, and, and, you know, we talk about this, we've been here a long time, but 
the last two and a half years have been absolutely transformational for this city. Yeah. I mean, it was already a big international city beforehand. Yeah. You know, when JLL does these lists of most important cities, Dubai's normally top 10. And, you know, the world's busiest international airport, home to more Fortune 500 regional headquarters than, you know, any other city. Fine. We're, 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 it, Dubai was already a, a significant place. But the, the last two and a half years have been astonishing. And yeah. a lot of this... Money, wealth, and status, I would argue, and I don't know, but I would argue, will stick. Mm. Not all, but a lot. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's talk tax, because late last week, the UAE corporate tax law was published. Joining us in the studio now is the tax expert, Shiv Mahalingam. He is international tax and global transfer pricing expert at the Kragus Group here in Dubai. Worked for multinational companies and big four firms for many, many years now. Shiv, good to see you. Thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you. Okay, Friday, it dropped. We got it. The tax law. What did we learn? Um, a lot of the announcements have been made pr- uh, previously. So 9% is the corporation tax rate that's coming in. Uh, it'll only kick in above 375,000 dirhams of, of profits. So no surprises around those items. Some, some helpful clarifications as well on the the timing. So it kicks in at 1 June 2023. And then 12 months after that, you have an additional nine months to pay your corporation tax uh, and submit your tax return, essentially. So February 2025, really, is the is the drop-dead date. That's when you've got to pay your bill. Correct. But they'll start calculating it from June 2023? That's correct. So any accounting period that begins post-dead date, you, your 12-month period of account, you calculate the taxation due, and then nine months after the year end, you'd need to submit the return and, and pay any tax that would be due on that amount. And so if, I mean, I'm, we're in Media City now, I'm, I'm looking out, I can see... You have Google headquarters, Microsoft headquarters, and and so on. If they have a, which they do, they have a, Microsoft is is a Microsoft's like September to September, isn't it? Google's January to January. So what happens to them for their chief financial officer? Yeah, even though a lot of detail came out in the uh, the most recent legislation, there are three additional clarifications that haven't been made that will affect different size groups. So the the Microsofts, the big groups that are above eight hundred and fifty million. Um, dollars of consolidated turnover, there still needs to be a clarification as to whether their corporation tax rate would be higher than 9% in line with OECD recommendations. And that's something that still needs to be confirmed by the UAE. The second is, if you look at the smaller groups, there there should be, there could be a, a small business exemption coming in. And we don't know what that level that may be at, but it would mean that businesses below that threshold may not even have to worry about this at all. And then the third so item. To talk, talk to me about yes, that. You know, just asking for a friend as someone who, with his wife, owns a small business. <laughs> <laughs> My eyes have lit up, Jim. But there'll be a lot of small business owners driving to work and watching on their sofa this morning here in, in the UAE in Sharjah, interested in, in, in what that might be. I mean, it may be that uh, a limit is set. I mean, let's say it's a million dirhams, just uh, for sake of argument. And anybody that has profitability revenue below that threshold. There may be a carve-out, an exemption from corporation tax in its entirety. And the reason for this is because sole traders, freelancers, social media influencers, etc., may be caught by the legislation. So you do see that in a lot of jurisdictions around the world, there's often a an exemption for those small businesses. And that's in addition to that 375000 
Durham uh, profit um, hurdle that I mentioned as well. Uh, Kyla's written in, lots of questions coming in. Kyla's written in saying, so as a small business owner, can I just give myself a much bigger salary and therefore avoid paying profit tax? Yeah, there's two reasons why that's inadvisable. One would be the fact that the clarification is that accounting expenses are going to be deductible. So anything that is incurred as an expense needs to be in line with accounting IFRS, international accounting standards. And the second is if you look at the legislation that came out recently, there's actually an anti-abuse provision, which says that if you do anything specifically to reduce your tax bill, it may be ignored by the uh, the government. All right. So, that, that, so Kyla, it's not going to work. It's probably not a good idea. Uh, but to anything in line with accounting regulations, uh, a salary of that nature that is uh, in line with market norms is, is absolutely fine to reduce the, the level of taxable profits. Right. Let's talk about accounting. Until we had VAT here, a lot of firms did their accounts informally. It didn't really matter. You didn't have to file them. Since VAT came in, obviously, there's been more of a burden to to have properly, or not audited accounts, but a, accounts that are um, using QuickBooks or something like that, rather than just on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet. To what extent are companies in the UAE prepared for this? I think, I think you hit the nail on the head because of the, we've had IFRS changes, VAT, introduction of, introduction of these other elements. I think now companies have, have already got set up to file VAT returns. So they, sh- you know, they should be able to, to, to build corporation tax within to that, uh, that reporting deadline. I mean, do, does the UAE have enough accountants to do this? A- again, you know, use the example of Media City. You look at some of the big multinationals mm-hmm. that are here, you know, IBM or whoever it may be. They've got a big four firm, and that's fine. But if you're a, a, a you know, a, a steel mill in Ajman, you haven't got a big four accountancy firm. Or if you're, a, as you mentioned, you know, a freelancer there, and many freelancers will earn above three hundred seventy-five thousand mm-hmm. dirhams. W- what do you do? Who do you turn to? Are there enough accountants here? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that more will come into force over the next year and a half. But at present, I think it's important to reach out to anybody that you're working with that's been helping you already with your accounting and VAT and talk to them and see if they can also assist with with the corporation tax. Also, economic substance, uh, a number of these different elements that companies would already have been dealing with uh, and try to build that into the the cycle. What you wouldn't want to do is have penalties down the line for not having addressed this. But as I mentioned, that exemption or that carve-out that may be introduced for small businesses that may also have um, a lighter level of accounting that is required for those businesses. Okay, fine. So it doesn't have to be audited. That's correct. One would hope that this will be clarified over the next six months. Um, The smaller groups, uh, a lower level of accounting that required. The larger groups, are they going to have to pay a higher level of tax? And the free zone entities is another question we get a great deal. And there's still no uh, definition of what qualifying and non-qualifying income would be for free zone entities. What yes. kind of questions are you being asked by your clients at the Craigus Group? And they t- tend to be larger organisations, don't they? Th- that's right. A lot of global multinationals, a lot of those businesses have been asking me whether the UAE is still a competitive environment for them to set up a regional hub. So when they look at Singapore and Luxembourg and Switzerland and other locations, they're saying, is the UAE bringing in these changes because they're looking to increase their tax take? Etc. And obviously, we tell them that there's a number of reasons why 
a company would be in the UAE. And tax, the lack of taxes is clearly beneficial, but it's not the only reason businesses invest in the UAE. And I think that's an important consideration for those large global multinationals. What about the G7 minimum global tax rate of 15%? You touched on this a little bit earlier on in the context of the, the multinationals. Just to recap, we haven't got much time on this, but last year G7 said 15% would be the minimum global corporate tax rate to stop countries competing on tax. We're 9%. We're not a G7 member. What's your quick take on that? Well, the UAE have committed to that pillar to 15% for large multinationals, as you, as you state. So it'd be very difficult to not imply, I'm sorry, impose that rate for any group above $850 million of, uh, of consolidated turnover. And I think that will be clarified over the next six months to a year, that the large groups will need to pay that minimum level of tax. Shiv, great talk. Do you appreciate your time this morning? I suspect this is not the last time we will chat between now and June of 2023. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, that is the voice of Shiv Mahalingam. He is with the Craigus Group here in Dubai. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Now we turn our attention to uh, the skies. Uh, joining us now, Head of Operations at Saren & Co. Vinamra Longardi joining us live on the line and live via Microsoft Teams. Morning, Vinamra. Good morning. How are you? We're good. And I need clarification, if I can. Mm-hmm. All sorts of rumours doing the rounds with regards to uh, Air India, uh, the now Tata Group-owned Air India Limited. Uh, close to have signed, looking to sign this deal with Boeing for the new planes? Well, uh, we've all been waiting for a considerable amount of time uh, for confirmation with reference to this order. You see, uh, a lot's happened since January uh, when the Tata Group actually took over the airline. So, uh, as you may be aware, and this is discussed across uh, globally due to effects of COVID, there are various supply chain issues with all aircraft manufacturers, be it Airbus, Boeing, deliveries uh, are, are significantly delayed across the board. And, and in light of that, uh, one would have thought this order may have come uh, a long ago, uh, but it didn't because of various issues. And in the meanwhile, in the interim, what we do know is Air India is spending close to $400 million in refurbishing legacy wide-body aircraft. So this is 40 wide-body aircraft. Most of them are owned by Air India. So they're, they're going all out to refurbish these aircraft. Also, what they're doing is, and this is all confirmed, you know, it's out in the open, they are leasing up to 42 aircraft, which which will be added to the fleet in 2023. So what this means is this being an interim measure, there may be an order, but these deliveries, I mean, if it's an order for 400, 500 aircraft, it's widely conjectured, conjectured it'll be split between wide-body aircraft and narrow-body aircraft. Uh, so deliveries from this particular order, should it be announced in the next couple of days, would only happen a couple of years down the line. It's evidence, though, isn't it? And it seems to suggest that the Tata Group are willing and wanting to invest heavily into the brand. Is that a given? Of course. You see, this. Uh, you see, they've got the wherewithal. Of course they do. And they've got the intent. You know, Air India is their legacy. GRD Tata started the airline. And, 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 and for th- that is why, uh, you know, uh, Air India going back to the Tata Group uh, just made so much more sense. Mm. So, so indeed, I mean, I can tell you for a fact that it's, uh, you know, the idea really is to make a world-class airline based out of India, which not only connects India to the world, but also does a lot of, for instance, what Emirates does, wherein connect different parts of the world 
via India, be it Delhi or Bombay, or any of these larger hubs. So, so you see, uh, the idea is, uh, it, the thinking is big. Uh, it, it seems very evident that the execution also is on those lines. So, so yeah, we've got a, a ve- very... I mean, we're all quite looking forward to it, to be honest. I mean, the potential's there, we know. Uh, obviously, extraordinary mm-hmm. um, uh, customer base as well to tap into. How are they going to go about it, though? What can they do differently? Well, you see, uh, what has been done, if, if you look at the last 12 months or so, you know, the focus has really been on fixing things like the on-time performance. Mm. I mean, it, it's interesting. You see, Indigo uh, built their brand around uh, being on time. And for the last two months, Air India has actually been has more flights departing on time than Indigo. So they've done things like revamping the website, enhanced meal services have been done. So a lot's been achieved in a very small span of time. I mean, and and the biggest piece really for me is you see they had four airlines which had to be integrated into two. So Air Asia India is now part of Air India. Uh, well, and being merged with Air India Express, which is the low-cost airline. The Vistara acquisition has been announced. They say they plan to close this by March 2024. So all of these four airlines put together, you have 218 aircraft right there. I mean, to give our viewers an idea, Indigo, which is India's largest airline, has close to 290 aircraft. So so that's 218 there. Obviously, these 500-odd aircraft... A couple of them will replace these older aircraft by the time they come in. But, I mean, you can see the vision really is to go big and build big and obviously build build world class. Significant order for Air India, significant investment from Tata Group. I suppose also significant for Boeing, who haven't had the best of headlines and the best of press throughout this year. Of course. You see, uh, all airlines speak to both large uh, OEMs, be it Airbus or Boeing. I mean, again, I'd like to look at Emirates because it's such a fantastically run airline. You've got the A380 fleet and you've got the Boeing 777 fleet. Similarly, I would not be surprised if the, the, the order split between the two OEMs because that's probably the best way for an airline to get a great deal. So and and the other notable factor here is you see uh, because of the Max continuously being grounded in China, uh, de- there is significant Max inventory which is available for Boeing to deliver to airlines well immediately, which is what is happening with another Indian low cost airline called Akasa. So they seem to be getting the first twenty odd aircraft or all aircraft that weren't taken up before. So, so, so Boeing has all these maxes which they can deliver in, on short notice, whereas Airbus doesn't. Mm. So, so that may be a reason why uh, we may see a max order, and also because Air India Express, which is the low cost unit of Air India, is a Boeing seven three seven operator. So, so yeah, I would not be surprised if it's uh, split between the two OEMs. Then I'm going to leave it there on this occasion. Thank you so much indeed for your time this morning. That is Vinamara Longani, head of operations at Sarin and Co, uh, and of course an aviation expert, joining us live on the line. Just the highlights. This is the bite sized business breakfast. Right, let's talk outrageous predictions now. Steen Jakobsen is chief investment officer at Saxo Bank. It's based in Denmark. He is fresh off a flight from Copenhagen about five hours ago. Steen, really appreciate you coming in to see us. Pleasure. So very quickly, we'll get into your outrageous predictions. You publish them every year. Just give us a 30-second overview for people who are driving to work or watching on their sofa and don't know what the outrageous predictions are. Just give us the overview of what they are. 
It's the uh, once-a-year opportunity to go outside the box, to be non-linear, to think about things that may or may not happen. We've done it for 20 years. A lot of them has been pretty outrageous, calling the Brexit, uh, Trump and others, and uh, somehow they turn out to be uh, you know, coming anyway. So it's really preparing investors for mostly bad news, but, but also uh, opportunistic uh, uh, themes that could be happening next year. I, I think of them as almost kind of black swan type predictions, things that probably won't happen, but just might. Yeah, exactly. Big impact, uh, little probability. Okay, well, let's go through some of them for this year. I'm looking at your predictions. Gold rockets to $3,000 as central banks fail on their inflation mandate. Talk yeah. us through that one. We're in the city of gold. Yeah, and we just listened to uh, Yellen, who never foresaw anything in her lifetime. So it's probably a good indication that she says it's going down. But it's really about reserve currency, the mutualization of dollars. And now the fact that that, that come on the heel of that meeting between uh, Saudi Arabia and, and China that uh, Russia now wants to be paid in gold. We think there's a very, very high probability that gold becomes the go-to collateral in the market, we think it uh, potentially will fly. Maybe not 3000 but certainly heading north for, for our money. Well, staying with inflation, uh, another one of your predictions is widespread price controls are introduced to cap official inflation. That would be quite dramatic. It would, and but it's already happening. Think about it. In France, utilities are going bankrupt because the government is capping the price of electricity. And overall, we the theme on this outrageous prediction is what we call the war economy. So we talk about constraints all the time. We talk about supply lines that are not being uh, resell. We have an energy deficiency. If the government wants to step up, if the government wants to support the consumer, the disposable income, they need to cap rates in their mind. Of course, that's wrong, but we think it's very likely. We've seen it historically all the way back to 300 AD uh, with uh, the emperors in uh, in Rome and all the way forward to what we see this year in France and even in the UK. It, it's funny, Tom and I were chatting earlier on. My dad's over at the moment, he's 86, and we had a few drinks in a garden with a friend of mine. His parents are over. All three of them were born during the Second World War, 1930s and 40s, and all of them remember rationing yeah, yeah, and that, that's... in their lifetime. And that's the story. If you think about it, and lack of supply is, is, a, is a, a form of rationing that will happen. And then you add to the fact that government during times of very high inflation will want to, in citation mark, help you. But as uh, Ronald Reagan says, the worst thing that, that someone can ever tell you is that we are the government. We are here to help you. <laughs> um, one of your predictions. I like this one. A country agrees to ban all meat production. By 2030. Funny enough, that uh, seems to be the one that, that uh, you know, creates the most headline. It's really about that a number of countries have said that 2050 they have to be zero uh, emission, you know, on car, uh, carbon emission. To do that for agricultural countries like Denmark, the Netherlands, uh, a lot of the CE countries, you need to reduce the amount of meat that we produce in the world. And it was a total shock to me, but apparently the average Western European eats 70 kilos of meat in order to get to sort of a reasonable level of emission from that industry itself. We need to reduce that to 24 kilos. On top of that, of course, the younger generation, I think we we are disqualified by actually having this conversation because obviously it's about the young generation who wants this plant-based food. They want to see that. Unfortunately, as things are as of today, this is a vision without delivery in the sense that there is enough products if you go down in the store. But I think ultimately this will come. I mean, it, obviously not coming 23. Most likely, as you're going to ask me next, Sweden probably.
You think Sweden? I your neighbours? Absolutely. They love to do intervention. And I say that with a smile because, of course, there's this historic uh, fight between the Danes and the Swedes. Uh, <laughs> we love each other, but at the same time, we hate each other. So we always think the Swede is going to, we used to call it forbidden Sweden in Denmark when I grew up. <laughs> oh, good to know. Well, I tell you, outrageous prediction, uh, Steen. Will Denmark win a football match in 2023? Your boys did not have a good World Cup. I would say this. Uh, I mean, at least we uh, we try to help the host Qatar by being the only team to play worse than they did. <laughs> well, it's a public service. Can we look back at your outrageous predictions for this year? They come out every December. How did you do? What grade would you give yourself for your outrageous predictions last year? Much too high a grade, unfortunately, because, of course, when we arrive, something bad happens. Uh, the... Uh, uh, we had one about the fossil energy uh, re-emerging. We, we got that one right, unfortunately. Uh, we had another one on inflation. Uh, we may not have gotten to 15%, but I think uh, it was close enough to, to, to give ourselves a B on that one. And then, of course, the big one was uh, face plants of Facebook, uh, down 80% uh, year to date uh, at some stage this year. I think that one worked out well. And then a small one on hypersonic weapon in space. Of course, unfortunately, what we've seen during the Ukraine war is the hypersonic weapon has been used. Well, well, let's talk about Facebook a little bit, or Meta as it's called now. It's just over a year ago that they rebranded as Meta, and Mark Zuckerberg famously came out with his, we are now a Metaverse first company, not a Facebook first company. What was the red flag for you? Why did you think this isn't going to end well? Number one, we saw that the uh, loyalty on the Facebook brand itself collapsed. Of course, Instagram is still very much a popular story. But if you have a company that uh, single-minded, with a single-mindedness thinks that they can go into virtual reality during a period, and maybe this is the old guy talking, but to, but to be honest, I, I think reality is difficult enough to handle. If I also have to handle a virtual reality, it's going to be difficult. And on top of that, they have spent uh, close to $10 billion on absolutely nothing and no traction in terms of uh, customer coming there. So uh, people claim it's going to be used for games, but again, games is in the virtual reality. You know, the big big theme, you know, not going on a, uh, going after Facebook is really to me that we live in an economy right now where 90, 90% of all assets that trade are intangibles, uh, IP, not real values. Only 10% sits in the real economy. So the real economy needs to grow. I think to some extent Facebook became a victim of that because if we want productivity, which is the only way you deal with inflation in a proper way, we need the size of the real economy to grow, which, by the way, is a very pro- uh, positive story because that means we're going to you know, with the young people, the companies needs to do a better product, a better quality, and overall we need to educate and, and train ourselves to be better. 20 seconds left, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin today, about $17,000. Are you long or short on Bitcoin stroke crypto for next year? I'm neutral until we get that big blockchain user case. I think it's coming one day, I don't know why. It's not happened already. It's good for taxes, it's good for global uh, monitoring. I think blockchain needs to come through first before we see a revival in the crypto space. Steen, great talking to you. Appreciate you coming in and appreciate you coming pretty much straight from Dubai Airport as well. Thanks very much indeed. That's the voice of Steen Jakobsen. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Saxo Bank with his outrageous predictions for 2023. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.